I need to make a personal introduction. Okay, let's do it. You're about to hear the wisdom of two guys that I know very personally, not just as business acquaintances, but as friends. Adam, especially, has been son-like to me over the course of the last 20-something years. And Mark England, too, has gained my total respect for how he thinks and what he says. Yeah. No, it goes further than that. Jen has become... I've become certified. (laughs) That doesn't sound good if I stop there, huh? I've gained a certificate of their program, the Enlifted Method, and it's a coaching methodology. And it's amazing. It's really, really incredible. It's helped so many of my clients. It's helped me. And this is crazy. Okay. There are no coincidences in life. So I was on Instagram and I was scrolling on through, you know, like normal people do. And I came across this really interesting post that caught my attention. And then I realized it was from this guy, Mark. And I thought, I think that guy's been to our house. He looks so familiar. And so I start, you know, Instagram stalking. And I realized that he's with this company called Enlifted. And then through my rabbit hole, I trace it back to Adam, who is a very good friend of ours, who's he created the studio, right? Yep. He created Jeffrey's studio back in the day. He's been back in the he day. And his wife. Uh, in 1478, <laughs> Adam Chen came and created the studio. It was like magic. Wow, he looks just, really good. It just appeared like a phoenix. 1478. He's, he's looking young. Anyway, he and his wife have been to our house. We love them. They're just gems of human human beings, beings, like total gems. And I'm going on this Instagram rabbit hole and I'm like, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I discovered the coolest program on the internet and guess who's a part of it, Adam and Mark. And so we interviewed them for Sell or Die. And here's the deal. We normally interview people for 15 or 20 minutes. This interview went on for over an hour and we decided to break it up into individual podcasts. it may even be like two, two hours, hours long. Whatever it, was. it was so much fun. We had to keep going. Right. And so over the next four weeks, you're going to be hearing part one, two, three, and four from us. No, we're going to go skipping four. It's going to be part one, two, three, four, and five, because we don't want to be too normal. You know what I mean? Well, not too normal would be 4.5. That's true. But that's already taken. Okay, but I'm going to challenge you as the diehard to listen closely because this information rocks. Welcome to the Sell or Die podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Gittimer. And I'm your host, Jen Gittimer. Well, in this podcast, we're going to help you attract more qualified, unbelievable, ready-to-buy clients. We're going to help you build loyal relationships. And the one thing you're hoping for Close more deals. Let's get into it. It's time to sell or die. What percentage of your success is based on your family upbringing? Ooh, Mark, start with that one. You've got a great upbringing. A percentage for sure. My father started a chain of convenience stores in 1980 in Richmond, Virginia Mm -hmm. called Lucky Convenience Stores. I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. It's all I knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but my parents didn't call themselves entrepreneurs because there were no entrepreneurs when I was little. They were just called business people. Yeah. That worked their mm-hmm. ass off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I grew up with those stories. I was four when my dad started the stores and I grew up with the stories of what he had to do to get it off the ground. 
Yeah, and the people that came in with a gun that wanted all the cigarettes. Yeah, all, the whole thing. <laughs> he thinks, because he had his first three stores were in some of the worst parts of town at the time. And at the height of Lucky's, he had 13 stores. Half of them were in country club area. The other half were in the worst parts of town. And originally, when those first stores had opened, there was an undercover cop on the Richmond PD that looked a whole lot like my dad. And he thinks that he was misidentified and they thought that this was a sting operation. And so they didn't mess with him. Richmond at that time was the murder capital of the United States. Tough action. Yeah. And, you know, my dad comes from the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, which is known for- Making uh, their own whiskey. Their own whiskey, coal mining, work ethic. It's an honor culture. And your brother's your uncle. If, <laughs> half the time. Oh, half Jeffrey. the time. So, you know, to answer your question, absolutely. I've worked for myself for 15 years. And before that, the five years that I was a, an elementary school sports teacher, I basically worked for myself. Like There was no doubt in my mind that yeah. I was going to be a businessman yeah. from the time I could- remember. Mm -hmm. I went through a period of time where I thought I was going to be a lawyer because my uncle Paul was a lawyer and I really admired him. But once I realized that I had to read a book and study, law was out for me. Sure. <laughs> they just take like tests and shit. I'm like, over. So you're probably wondering who we're speaking with because oh. usually it's just me and you. And Oh, this Jeffrey. is our podcast. Yeah, this Adam's got to answer that question though too. You know, yeah. what did his family upbringing yeah. influence? Because he's, you've been self-motivated and engaged for a long time as well. I grew up in a family that owned their own business. Same. And I didn't know anything else. And everyone who came to our house owned their own business. Mm. It's just like part of the upbringing. You're going to have your own business. My mom had her business. My dad had his business and the whole family. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, they all were business people. So Adam, tell us. Well, I come from uh, my father's side, Chinese Thai stock. What do I say Chinese Thai? Because a lot of the Chinese moved into Thailand in the past, I'd say 150 years. They run the economy over there. Mm -hmm. We might be considered to be Semitic type peoples of Asia, oh, cool. maybe in that role. I'm proud. It makes me proud. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, for them, it's not a matter of whether you're going to be a business owner or entrepreneur or not. It's like either you starve or you're running a business. Yeah. yeah. And it's so that is in my DNA. Seeing my grandfather as a child, I'd go over to, to Thailand where he was living. He was born in China when he was six, seven years old. His family moved down to Bangkok and they hustled, had nothing and turned nothing into a floating market boat. They sold trinkets and batteries and this and that. And then by the time my grandfather was old enough to run it, they had shops, several shops and they had a factory. By the time my dad was old enough, they sent him to Columbia University. So to go from peasants wow. to that is a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather didn't speak English and I spoke no techu, which was the Chinese dialect that he spoke. But I would observe my grandfather when I'd go over there and I'd see him. And I had, you know, all told probably a year total with him. And I would just watch him. And he ran that business in the most methodically, every man utilitarian way, no flash, zero flash. Got up in the morning, went for a jog, back when jogging was weird, and then went to work. Went to work at behind the desk, ran the numbers, got the thing going. At this point, he had factories. He had a battery factory. He had ceramics factories. He had a bunch of stuff. You'd never know it because he drove the same car that was 30 years old that looked like it was you know, on his last leg. I mean, he kept it nice, but he's not flashy. No flash. His brothers, on the other hand, the guys in the motorcycles, the BMW motorcycles, smoking cigarettes, drinking booze, and hanging out with the ladies of the night. So uh, In Thailand, there's no dearth of those. Yeah, there's plenty of that, especially when you got money. So 
I saw my grandfather do this at a young age, and it was under the assumption that I would eventually be in some sort of business of my own. My dad literally uh, had this uh, bulletin board made when I was a kid that said Adamson Enterprises, Adamson. And, and I was like, that's one of the first things I remember reading when I was a kid. Wow. And uh, it must have spelled me, as we'll get to later, Mark, because I've had zero fear. Huh, zero. We all have fear when it comes to building our business. But when you realize that it's like in building a business or having to go work <laughs> for somebody yeah, and not... Right. And However, you still work your ass off. I, well, when I work with you, but that's different. That was No, very, no, no. I'm talking about when you own your own business, you're the hardest worker. Well, a job and a passion and something that you can craft, that you can craft on your own and have a say in how it operates and author yeah. to an extent. Yeah. In my family business, my father and my grandfather always did the jobs that handled the cash. So they were literally the clerks at the hotel. When people would check in, there was no credit cards. So they had their $9 or $12 or whatever it was for a night of, to stay, and they would take the money uh, every time. And later on, my mentor, Earl Pertnoy, who owned a bunch of clothing stores in Miami, would test his people. Some guy would run in, buy a tie for $10 and say, I don't have time, I got to go, and <laughs> drop the $10 on the counter. If the employee put the $10 in the register, they got to keep their job. If they put it in their pocket, they got to get fired within an hour. So the, Good test. Yeah. <laughs> the important thing is if you are a salesperson listening to this, I want to recenter for a minute. Oh. When you are a salesperson, you are making your own business Correct. and you are running the show as if you own the company. And if you're not, then you need to reconsider your job as a salesperson because every job I've had as a salesperson in order to be successful, I've always thought about it as being the CEO of my territory, mm -hmm. which is the same as entrepreneurship. It's ownership and mm -hmm. responsi right. responsibility. And responsibility. Is a, yeah, yeah, and they're cousins, ownership or responsibility. And well, you know, your boss may want you to be accountable. That's bullshit. You need to be responsible for yourself and your outcomes. Yeah. Which could be a great segue into talking about the language of responsibility and oh, ownership. Should yeah. Should we do that? It's so subtle. But I was, I was, uh, yeah, I've practiced this for, for so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what since we're, we're here, since might we're as here. well. All right, all and right. this is what we do, folks. We work with coaches, leaders on refining and optimizing their language. And they say shit better. And they say shit and they live shit What happens better. when they say shit better? Oh, Mark, what happens when someone's words improve? There's a variety of things that happens when someone improves their language. And when we say language, folks, we're talking about internal dialogue and external dialogue. What we think, what we say, and what we write. When someone makes some seemingly, this is the first time I've ever said this, that's why it's coming off so smoothly. When someone makes some seemingly, that's a joke, minor adjustments in their everyday ordinary language, they're going to make better pictures. Their little mental movies and their imagination, their feelings and emotions are going to improve. It will eventually show up in how you move, also known as your posture, and your breathing will descend. You'll get yourself out of these long-standing, upregulated stress states known as sympathetic That's nervous system it. response. The breath will descend down into the abdomen where it's supposed to be, in which if you deliver your pitch, since some people that are in sales are going to listen to this podcast, you will sound way better than if you're all tight and constricted and you got the best thing to sell and the person wants to buy, but there's something off because you're all self-conscious about something. And it, you just, you sound like an amateur. If you deliver your pitch while you're breathing in your chest, you're gonna sound like an amateur. Get your breath low and slow, as we say in the, the Enlifted Biz, and you'll be beyond confident. You'll be in the realm of comfort. And when you're talking to someone or delivering a presentation or 
pitching and you're breathing well and you sound comfortable, it puts everybody else at ease and you'll sell more, you'll make more money. So I have, <laughs> I have a question. The language that you speak is English, but the words that you speak is your lexicon. To get more detailed in the conversation, yes, we've got third degree black belts in simplicity. And yes, I actually introduced myself as an English teacher last week Oh, cool! because it's accurate in one level. And eventually somebody asked me where I taught, if I was in the classroom, and then, then the conversation got more sophisticated. So we help English speakers currently because there's only so many ways I can piss myself off in German. You know, we'll get into other languages yeah. at, after we nail the English vertical. Let me just say this. Yeah. The language has to be relatable. And when you think about a song that you latched onto when you were growing up. You remembered the lyrics. The lyrics affected you. Some dance to remember, some dance to forget. It's arguably one of the best right, lines right. ever mm. written in music. That's what you relate to. And, and that's that, why, why we have to be very careful with what we're repeating and what we remember and how yeah. we remember it. Because that's a big part of what Mark is, is communicating with our coaches is that there's a lot of ways to get to what the core of it is that the person's trying to communicate. One way is to say it the, the old-fashioned way, the tried and true way, that's kind of messed up. You get there and then you tweak it, you craft it. So one of the great quotes I love is the Jordan Peterson quote, don't compare yourself to who someone else is today, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. So you start with the messed up thought because you can make that quote the first part of the phrase. And if you run with that phrase, you're screwed. Because don't compare myself to someone who's someone else's today. I keep running with that. And what do I do with that? Well, it's just what I don't want to do. You have to keep looking at what they said the next day. Exactly. But if you have the instructions that you've given to yourself to compare yourself to who you were yesterday, that's going to be with you. That's something you can take with you as practical advice to build one's personality, one's mindset, one's life around. So that's what we do. We do practical mindset training. So let's talk about the words you say to yourself versus the words that you say to a potential client or prospect. How are the words that you're saying to yourself impacting what you say to others? Well, as far as my perceived level of deservance, if I have been telling myself a story of a certain kind for who knows how long, and I'm secretly and have been talking myself into believing I'm not good enough to become as successful as part of me wants to be. And let's say that it's called a telephobia. It's the fear of not being good enough. And it's one of the cornerstones of the victim mentality. What is it called again? A telephobia. Hmm. And it is one of the main cornerstones or pillars of the victim mentality. You know, how many times have you seen people talk themselves out of being successful or great opportunities. And it's not a technical issue. It's not a skill issue. So in the Enlifted community, we talk about the trifecta of mastery. So one of those being the skill set. You need to get to become skilled, build a skill set about whatever it is that you want to do well in, whether it's presentation skills or fighting, mixed martial arts fighting, or thumb wrestling, or playing the violin, or sales. You need the skill set. You need to build up an identity that supports you taking it into the arena and competing with other people with that similar skill set. And then you need a community of people that you can talk to and relate. And if you get those three things on a long enough timeline, you're flirting with success. And what we have found is that the skill set is, yes, it's very important. It's very important. And usually what makes or breaks people, it, it's not 
the technical knowledge about whatever it is they want to get better at. It's the part of them that is working against them behind the scenes. And that directly relates back to the language that they're using. This is an educational issue. Most people's language is working against them. They have negation acknowledged. They have no idea it's, it's happening. And this is coming from school. So I have a degree in education. I used to teach and I was also brought up in the public school system. And the only training that I got with my words, my language, was traditional spelling, grammar, and definitions. I had no courses, classes, or conversations about how to use my language to keep the drama low, stay focused on what's important to Do me, what we tell you. talk myself up in my imagination. Uh, Turn and, to page 71. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is the gerund of this verb. Thanks. I could use that last week. But there's a self-confidence issue there. If I'm speaking to somebody and my confidence level is high, I'm going to sound a hell of a lot better than if I'm unprepared or if I feel like someone's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to or I'm self-conscious about my look or my appearance. For sure. And you show me someone who's self-confident, I'll show you someone who's using their language in a certain way to build up that Mm self-confidence. And that's what we talk about when we reference practical mindset tools. So we operate a lot in the fitness space. Most of our coaches are from the fitness space, even though the Enlifted Method is universally applicable. In the fitness space, mindset is talked about a lot. Great. Let's keep talking about it. And it's usually held at this big picture macro level conversation as in it's this thing I know I need to get better at. There's that confident person over there. That looks fun. I'm over here. Whoops, would have been nice. If only I had a positive attitude. Right. No, hold on one second. You go back to how you were raised and sometimes there was a comparison made between you and somebody else where your mom said, why can't you be more like so-and-so? Sure. Or someone bested you at something and you were jealous of who he or she was and you wanted to be more like them. And I'm lucky that my father taught me, don't worry about other people, focus on becoming the best person you can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because my mom made comparisons. Yeah. Why right. can't you be more like Paul Rosenberg? And I said, and Paul Rosenberg, smartest kid in the world. Right. Old I said, Paul Mom, Rosenberg. Paul Rosenberg doesn't get laid. Well, that, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and there's and only one Paul Rosenberg. Huh? There's, there's only one Paul Rosenberg. He has to be Paul Rosenberg. Yeah. You know, you have to be Jeffrey Gitterberg. Paul Rosenberg. Huh? Paul, do- Paul Rosenberg. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, but so, isn't this the whole thing? I think that's a great bridge because we're talking about, you know, the four of us have had some sort of influence in our early lives, sure. which we were able to model someone that was successful. No, success influence, not just and, influence. Yeah. Six, well, yeah. we were modeling success. Right. And that's a really, that's a big life hack. But we and didn't then, know we were modeling. We were just living. We didn't know. But kids are sponges and we do that. Right. What if he didn't have that? What if he didn't have any of that? And I think that's what the practical mindset component of what we keep talking about. We keep using this phrase is like, how could we package that in a way that anybody could get back to mm-hmm. that space with if even if there was no modeling available? Because if I say, hey, Jeffrey, be more positive. Like, what are you going to do with that? What the hell does that mean? The worst advice in the world. So yesterday in a tennis match, we were playing a 10-point tiebreaker, and we were down, it was six them and one us. Okay, so it was one six. And usually in the matches up until this point, we'll say things like, okay, you got this. We got this. Yeah, we're going to come back. And that's really positive. Yeah. And yesterday I said to my partner, we got this. Started with that. And then I said, let's hit it down the middle. We had a plan. Oh, yes. We had a very specific plan formula of what to do next. And we won the 10 point tiebreaker. So all of a sudden it was two, six, three, six, four, six. Now they're feeling like shit because we've won so many points in a row. And they're scared. You know? And 
And they're tentative. Well, you were magic. You were saying what you're going to do and you did it. The biggest difference was we had a plan. We had a direction to do it versus just the positive. It's the difference between general advice and specific instructions. And that's what we're to finish up that conversation loop on mindset. When we add in, we've been on a lot of podcasts about this, talking about this exact same thing. Everybody nods. When we add in to the conversation about mindset, what words to use less of and why, and what words to use more of and why, then people can practice thinking, speaking, and writing, also known as using their language, in ways that serve them. They become more aware. They become more constructive. It makes mindset practical. The root word of practical is practice. And that is, in my personal professional opinion, I'm going to speak for both of us, that's the missing link when it comes to mindset. Otherwise, it's this, like I said, this thing you need to get better at, but how? And to talk about Paul Rosenberg, because we need to talk about Paul Rosenberg, <laughs> most people have memories in their in their story that hold a negative emotional charge that are uh, uh, influencing or supporting that, a telephobia, fear of not being good enough, nothing ever works out for me, all these. You need to be able to clean that stuff up too. So it's a remediation process. The Enlifted Method is all about getting into, Jen, you know this, level two grad, go into the backstory and let's clean up, let's clean some house and then as in write those stories down. People are very underwritten. I'm not talking about insurance. And then so you you clean up these stories and then you start using your language today in even just slightly better ways and you're going to feel it. Hang on one second. I want to just let me bring up Paul Rosenberg. One sure. Yeah, this guy. Is My mom dared to compare me to Paul Rosenberg. Sure. She used the comparison model to try to get me to do more, be more, be study harder mm-hmm. or whatever. And I, and this is 60 years ago, just keep that in mind. I'm still remembering that lesson. I refused to take that comparison because in my heart, I knew I was better than that. Didn't matter if smarter on grades or what you or the shit you did. It was, how do you feel about yourself? And I felt like I was better. I didn't tell my mom that. I made something funny up. Paul Rosenberg doesn't get laid. My mom whacked me so hard, by the way, that she hurt her wrist. <laughs> oh, no. And it was in one of those things for about a month. And my dad came home and he was going to deal with me. You know what I mean? Sure. So my dad takes me into a room and he goes, way to go. <laughs> now pretend like I'm... Well, he did that get, several uh, times. It's, it's, think about why she used that tactic with you. Because maybe she was used to using that tactic with herself. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's what people exactly. generally do. It's like, I'm going to compare you versus someone else. Maybe that'll motivate you. Like that motivates me. You know, and I yeah. think that's where we get tripped up and that we call those projections. You know, when you think about people, you, you have an issue that you don't like about yourself. Yeah. I can pinpoint it out in the distance uh-huh. and I can spot it and then I can mm-hmm. use that against them. It can be effective. But it's negative it's, motivation. And it's, uh, yeah, it's ascetic, ultimately ascetic and it erodes progress. And if she would have said to me, I want you to think about the 10 best qualities that not just Paul has, but other people have. And let's measure yourself up to those 10 best qualities and see if you want to get better at it. Right. But in those days, it was just so simple. You know, I came home to cookies and cake and stuff that my mom made. And even though she was an entrepreneur, she still made dinner every night and cleaned the house, right. except when Lucy came. 
<laughs> Lucy was the maid who came three days a week. I love Lucy. Yeah. Sorry, I had to. Um, so. <laughs> but Lucy, you clean up the maids coming. Like, I'm on to the maid. It's one was, Everybody says that. But yeah, yeah, that's a thing. That's, that's interesting, though, because, you know, that was something you see a lot in that generation, which was an, an acute awareness of what other people are thinking and feeling and judging about you and how you live your lives. You know, you saw that a lot. You look, read the literature from that period. There's a lot of anxiety. It was the 60s. It was the early 60s. Early 60s. Yeah, the Mad Men era. Yeah. People were very, very anxious about how others felt about them and how they judged them. And this is a big part of what you encounter, I would say, on a daily basis with our coaches and in coaching sessions is people's perceptions of others. But and, there's well, lessons there. There's lessons there. And if you don't learn those lessons... You lose. Yeah. Our early housekeeper named Julie listened to the black rock and roll stations and she would come in every day, literally every day, and tell me what Georgie Woods played or Jocko Henderson played that night on WDAS and made me go from the white version of the song to the black version of the song. And that gave me my music education. Do you ever get music education from a housekeeper, which we call a maid? And the answer is no, but I did. Antenna's up. Right. Is up. Yeah. Okay, but let me throw this also at you. The day John Kennedy was killed, I'm rounding the corner to come into our home and up the driveway, and it was only me and Lucy in the house. And she was listening to the radio the same time I was listening to the radio. And I, I walked in the door, we were both crying, and she just hugged me. And those things just never happened. They just never happened. And this was just that one moment in time where you just, you didn't know what to do. So you hug somebody. It's pretty cool. Thanks for listening to the show. Don't forget to like, share. Yeah, share with both your friends. And subscribe to the podcast. And remember, we have a free 22-day sales challenge. Just go to Gutimer.com slash sales challenge to start you on your way.